in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Gabby Dunn here. Still bad with money. Still podcasting about it. Let's do the damn thing, as the bachelorette would say. Yeah. That's right. I'm queer and I watch The Bachelorette. There's a lot of us out there. Deal with it. As we continue this season's ongoing analysis of how hopeless, morally polluted, and economically devious pretty much every facet of American society is, speaking of The Bachelorette, this week I'm proud to introduce a note of nuance and maybe even a ray of hope. This week on the show, we're talking about campaign finance. I can already hear you saying, campaign finance is supposed to give us hope, Gabby. That may be the blinkest thing you've ever said on the show. And you say tons of annoying things on this show. Yeah, I know. I'm very annoying. But look, there's a reason the show isn't listed in the comedy section of Apple Podcasts, okay? It's not a comedy. The thing is, these days, I can't help feeling like we only ever hear two messages when it comes to money and politics. Message the first. Corporate money and ideological billionaires have a total stranglehold on the American political system. No ordinary American can ever hope to outmatch the shocking amount of money the rich are willing to spend to preserve the status quo. That's me. That's how I feel. 
Message the second. The election of Donald Trump is a sea change moment. The old rules no longer apply. Anyone can run for office. And if we get smart about transformational candidates all the way down the ballot and offer them our financial support, in time, we can upend the traditional power structures that perpetuate economic stratification. I a little bit feel that way as well. And look, I don't know about you guys, but I think I'm being pessimistic and we should be way more excited about message number two. The thing is, both of these things can be true, right? If the first message is true, it seems like the second message is nothing more than a fantasy to keep us all from giving up and moving to Vancouver. But like I said, they both seem kind of true. So are they both true or are neither true? Or is one true and the other isn't? Stay tuned. I'm going to do my best to find out after the break. Welcome back to the show. Let's meet our first guest, journalist Josefa Velasquez. Josefa is a reporter for Sludge, where she writes about the influence of money on political campaigns. And she was more than game to dig into the conundrum of whether we're delusional and doomed or down but not out. It feels like voters get conflicting messages about money in politics, like we're told that the campaign finance system is polluted with billionaire influence. And then on the other hand, particularly post-Trump, we're told that small targeted donations and like new wave candidates with grassroots support are going to save us, which um, kind of both has been happening. So how how should listeners be thinking about like the role that their money can play in a campaign for the future? Right. So it's a little bit of both. I mean, most people have probably heard of the Citizens United case, which is a landmark 2010 decision by the Supreme Court that said that it was unconstitutional to limit the campaign spending of private groups. So let's say, for instance, you wanted to donate to a candidate, there's a limit to how much you can donate. But if you get together with a few other people and create an organization, you could basically donate virtually unlimited amounts, Mm -hmm. um, as long as you don't coordinate with a campaign. So what that's translated into has been a bunch of deep-pocketed interest groups throwing money around elections and advertising in a way to sway voters. At the end of the day, the people that are donating money are donating money for advertisements and mailers and staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, does that actually translate into people taking the time out to vote? I mean, I think in some cases you're seeing these deep pocket incumbents being blindsided and losing to someone who's relatively obscure. Mm-hmm. And that's due in large part to getting people to the polls. I mean, primary races, especially locally ra- local races, have very, very, very low turnout. So it basically just becomes a game as to who has the best get out to vote operation and how many people you can get to the polls. Right. Um, so what's more effective, donating money directly to the candidates that you believe in or or donating to organizations doing the work you believe in that might throw their support behind like a broad slate of candidates? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of really a toss up. You know, on one hand, you can donate directly to a campaign and you can mm-hmm. sort of track your money and see what your candidate is spending your $20 on. But if you give to an organization, you don't necessarily have control over what candidates they'll endorse. Mm-hmm. But if you agree with, you know, the main ethos of an organization, then it's a great way to elevate a bunch of small donations into basically like bundling them. So mm-hmm. a candidate will, you know, notice that this donation, you know, is up to par with something, you know, much larger. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the the primary in New York's 14th congressional district. So heads up, guys. As you're about to hear, this interview was done before the vote and before Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez became a national news story. But it's still relevant because it's a big piece of the financial dynamics of our campaigns today. So, OK, so this was recorded before. Just keep that in mind. OK, back to the interview. So the incumbent is a Democrat, Joe Crowley, and he's being challenged from the left by a progressive Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and you wrote a piece about the role of corporate donations in that primary. Um, can you can you tell us what you found? Because I feel like it's like a very indicative thing for this the question of this episode. Right. So it's part of a larger trend that's happening where incumbents are being challenged by people who aren't well-funded. Right. Joe Crowley is one of the, like, few remaining political bosses in New York, and he has had his eyes set on replacing Nancy Pelosi if Democrats were were to regain control of the House. So Crowley's always been billed as like a more liberal option to Pelosi, but his 
campaign is receiving a lot of money from corporate PACs, which is something we hear a lot about, but like, what are corporate PACs? They're just basically political committees that are associated with large corporations. On the other hand, his challenger, who has like a fraction of the money that Crowley has, has taken zero dollars from corporate PACs. And she's been she's part of this growing list of Democrats, uh, some of whom are eyeing presidential runs that reject corporate cash. Mm -hmm. So why are politicians doing this? It's basically to appeal to progressive voters that are concerned over the influence of money in politics and people being too close to special interest. But it's worth noting that it's not just Democrats that are doing this. There is another race in New York that's actually today where it's a Republican seat and there's two Republicans that one of which has taken in a lot of money from Washington and political groups and the other one, Michael Grimm, who had been in jail for a little bit, hasn't taken, you know, nearly a fraction of that, which is Mm -hmm. a huge thing that's happening all around the country. Yeah, I mean, it's these outsiders, quote unquote, right? Yeah. So it seems that there's these outsiders are getting a lot of groundswell of Mm -hmm. support from community members and people in their district, whereas people that are more establishment are getting money from, you know, the entities and organizations that they regulate through Congress or wherever. I mean, so one of the things that's striking from reading your work is like a huge percentage of campaign contributions are from people outside candidates districts where we've seen like on Twitter, people sort of being like, give money to this person in in Alabama or or, you know, Missouri or Texas. And um, in New York, in the in the Crowley um, Ocasio-Cortez contest, both candidates only received a small percentage of their contributions from people who can actually cast votes for them. So um, has this always been true or is is this a new thing where donations from outside the districts have increased in recent election cycles? To me, it feels new because it's just like blowing up Twitter, but it could be a thing that's always been happening. So it's sort of hard to tell because the Federal Election Commission, which is the one that puts together all these reports, doesn't require donations under $200 to be itemized, Mm -hmm. which I think is indicative of how much they care about donations that are under $200. Mm -hmm. So 73% of Ocasio-Cortez's campaign donations are unitemized. So they're small donors, which Mm -hmm. means that they're not required to be disclosed from where they're from. But you can probably infer that a large portion of that is probably from within her district. So I, I think because of things like Twitter and the internet and Facebook, we have seen this sort of influx of people being more active in their political communities. But it's very clear that the 2016 presidential election has sort of lit a fire under voters, whether they agree with Trump's policies or not. It's inspired voters to become engaged on a local level. Mm -hmm. I think people are more in tune with what's going on with their area and willing to donate or campaign for someone or go and knock on doors. I mean, whether or not this becomes a trend, I think that's something we'll probably see a few years down the road. Yeah. I mean, I have, I'm of two minds where it's like, I, I, I want obviously more progressive candidates, but I'm also like worried that they're taking money from Democrats who could actually win. You know, is that kind of a thing that's, that's popping up? Yeah. So, you know, to that point, your people are sending folks into the general election that might be a little too fringe for most voters. So what ends up happening is that, you know, Democrats who are, you know, middle of the field Democrats may end up voting for someone who's a moderate Republican rather than someone who is super to the left and vice versa. So there is sort of the concern that if you pick someone who is either too far right or too far left, the voters who are down the middle, which is, you know, a large portion of voters, are going to not vote for that candidate. Right. It's like the Democrats are having this this broader array of diverse candidates, a lot of them new to politics, a lot of them like really progressive. But is that like an accurate narrative? Like the the are they getting financial support directly from supporters if they're Democrats or are they being sort of propped up by corporations and super PACs as well? So it's both. I mean, Democrats are fielding a wider or a broader array of candidates in comparison to Republicans. Mm -hmm. 
That's for sure. But, you know, the Democratic Party is certainly being propped up by corporations and super PAC because it's not legal or wrong to do, despite like the negative connotations that come with those names. Um, But there also has been a groundswell of voters that are sending new people to Congress. I think the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are really at this point where there's a lot of fissures forming. Mm -hmm. You can argue that the Democratic Party isn't progressive enough or doesn't have enough women or people of color or non-binary individuals. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of what's popping up on both political parties at this point. Right. Like, uh, also, Republicans are like, this person isn't hateful enough. Anyway. um, Yeah. It's it's it feels very helpless. Like I read, you know, I read all these articles about these billionaires backing people and I Citizens United and I read like Dark Money by Jane Mayer, which was the scariest book I've ever read in my life. Um, (laughs) But I guess there there are there have been some wins. Um, Are they are campaigns like figuring out how to better connect with grassroots voters versus like going after larger donations? You know, yes, I think they're trying to figure it out. This is completely new territory. Right. It's very new. Yeah. For both parties and trying to figure out how do you placate the needs of this grassroots level? You know, we saw it with the Tea Party, for instance, for the Republicans, like the parties will shift at some point Mm -hmm. um, to sort of understand the needs of these grassroots level, you know, voters. I mean, they're there might not be that many of them, but they're certainly loud. This election cycle obviously has this feeling of like great significance, um, not just because Congress is up for grabs, but because, you know, the the voter turnout and the donations at the grassroots level. Um, is this like the first time this has happened? Is there a historical precedent for this or is this like so drama, but like a real turning point in American politics? <laughs> I think, you know, that remains to be seen, right? Like hindsight's always twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we'll get a clearer picture after November's elections whether things have actually changed and there's a new batch of folks coming into Congress who like aren't, you know, super tied to the political establishment. I mean, as to whether there's precedent for this, I mean, throughout mm-hmm. history there's been surges of like populism. So like Richard Nixon popularized a silent majority. Uh, you saw the blooming grassroots movement in like the Occupy movement, right. which was great. And, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, you have the Tea Party, for instance. And we saw that sort of grassroots movement, again, take a hold during, you know, the presidential election cycle with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. So, you know, some could argue that, you know, we're, this is just history repeating itself, you know, I think we'll probably know the answer as whether this was a turning point or not, like in 10 years. As we were discussing with Josefa, it's an election year. And beyond just the congressional primary in New York, ludicrous amounts of money are flying in and out of the campaign coffers of candidates who claim they're going to shake up the status quo. And after the break, Rachel Shorey from The New York Times will introduce us to a few of them. And we're back with Rachel Shorey, who's been tracking the financial twists and turns of the 2018 election cycle at The New York Times. There's no question that uh, the $25 that an individual gives is not going to compare to somebody who's giving $20 million. Or we just heard the other day, Michael Bloomberg said he wants to spend $80 million this cycle. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, those are different. Those are those are different numbers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Um, but uh, there, there are some ways in which giving money to a, to a candidate, even sort of a lot of people giving these small donations, actually is different than giving to a super PAC. Because, so there are limits on what a candidate can receive. Um, every election cycle, a candidate can get a maximum of $5,400 per donor. Mm-hmm. So even if Michael Bloomberg or whoever it is wants to give $80 million, he's going to have to give that to a super PAC or some other kind of organization. He can't give it directly to a candidate. And those outside groups are not allowed to coordinate with candidates. Mm -hmm. So they can't do things like pay campaign staff. Um, And uh, I think, I mean, I'm, it's impossible to say, does the $80 million, I mean, mean, $80 million means something no Mm -hmm. matter where it goes, but do those, what is it that a candidate needs money for that a super PAC can't really cover? And I think it's possible we saw a little bit of evidence of the value of money for candidates in the Alabama Senate race. 
just because one thing, a lot of donors really kind of dropped Roy Moore, uh, the Republican in that race, after the uh, misconduct allegations came out against him. I think there's some question as to whether the fact that he just didn't have a lot of money in his own campaign's wallet, I Mm -hmm. guess, maybe that made it harder for them to actually get voters to the polls, you know, to coordinate all of that stuff. And even though towards the end of that race, some super PAC money did come in to buy advertising, Mm -hmm. I think that some of that traditional campaign infrastructure hasn't really been taken over by super PACs yet. Um, I, I don't think that there's like clear evidence that that is what happened. He was obviously an extremely flawed candidate, mm-hmm. but I do think that there are still things that um, that the money that candidates are raising is is different in some ways. And then I would also add um, that there is some there is some additional value in the TV world in candidates um, getting money directly instead of to super PACs, mm-hmm. and that is that television stations are required to give candidates their best available advertising rate, mm. and that guarantee does not apply to super PACs or parties or anything else. It's just the candidates. So a dollar given to a candidate actually does go further than a dollar given to a super PAC, sometimes to a pretty remarkable degree. Oh, oh, wow. Um, Is there um, any sense that Democrats could like exhaust their fundraising efforts on the primaries and then and then tap out in the general election against a Republican opponent? Um, Because I feel like that kind of a little bit happened for Bernie maybe in this last time, but is that a thing that like you're seeing in data at all? So I think that that is a concern, but I don't think it's a huge one. Um, And one reason for that is that contribution limits, you know, I said, uh, so the total amount that you can give to a candidate in an election cycle is $5,400, but that's actually split up into two chunks. There's a it, it's it's done by election, and the primary and the general count as separate elections. Mm-hmm. So you can give $2,700 for a primary election and then another 2700 for a general election. That is, again, assuming that you can pony up $5,400, but those people who are maxing out are going to be able to give again. So they're not going to hit the ceiling mm-hmm. um, because those donations, they can, they can start over. Um, I think another reason that this isn't as big a concern as it could be is that in many of these races, these closer races, once the primary is over, we're going to see them sort of be nationalized. Um, So many Democrats who don't live in competitive districts are going to send money to the races that look like pickup opportunities, even if they don't necessarily have a connection to that area. Mm. Um, And to be clear, Republicans will do the same to defend those seats. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's one sided. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, over the past year, we've just seen we've seen some of the most expensive house races in history in some of these special elections. Uh, John Ossoff, for example, who lost that special election in Georgia's sixth district, he was he was a Democrat in that race. Um, that was in June of 2017, and he raised 30 million dollars, which is, which, I mean, that's an amount that is, uh, I think, I think, unprecedented for a um, congressional candidate. And Connor Lamb, who won Pennsylvania's 18th district earlier this year, raised six million. And in both of those cases, their opponents weren't even close in terms of fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of enthusiasm around that time about of people saying. Uh, you know, Democratic candidates are just going to have a permanent fundraising advantage. This is extraordinary. You know, they're nationalizing these races and really giving. At the same time, those special elections were the only game in town at that point, mm-hmm. and they really did attract national attention. And so I guess the question really that sort of sums it all up is, can the Democrats keep that up when there are 435 congressional elections? And That's 30, what I think we're going to run out of election. money. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's the case. Um, look, no, we're not we're not going to have 435 30 million dollar races, <laughs> right? But there are going to be a lot of people who are going to, I think, give a fair amount of money based on their interest in having the Democrats win the House, not based on their interest in necessarily a specific candidate, and who maybe just don't even care that much about who wins the primary, right? Yeah, they just want a Democrat to win. Yeah. Yeah, I just mean that, like, you know, you're you're going to try to support, you're going to try to give $25 every time, and then that adds up to, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, or like, you, you give, you, you can start over with your donations from the primary to the general, but you might not have money to start over as a, as a constituent. Certainly that is the case. Uh, the, the limits really only apply if you're talking about uh, the people who are, giving the maximum and really only on the high end of donors. 
So speaking of the billionaires that we were alluding to before, um, you worked on the piece about the the U lines. Um, can you can you tell us who they are? Yeah, so I I provided mostly numbers research sure. for this piece. Um, I didn't I didn't write it just to be right. clear. Um, that was Stephanie Saul and Danny Hakim. Um, but yeah, I can talk a little bit about them. Um, so the couple Richard and Elizabeth Uline they run a company called Uline, which is spelled U U L I N E. Mm-hmm. Their name has a lot more vowels than that. Um, and uh, so this company sells shipping and office supplies. So if you happen to have a shipping box sitting around um, and you flip it over, a huge portion of the cardboard boxes out there are made by the U-Line company. They live in Illinois, but their company is headquartered just over the state line in Wisconsin. Um, and another fun U-Line fact is that Richard is a descendant of one of the founders of the Schlitz Beer Company in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. One of the things that the article illustrates is that they can kind of, you know, align their political leanings and then just give a lot of money. Can you give us examples of the types of people or the causes that the Uline support? It just reminds me a lot of like the Mercers or um, the, the mm-hmm. Koch brothers essentially. But yeah, like what, what kind of, what people are causes are they supporting? Yeah. So they're one, I think one of the reasons that they're one of the biggest spenders so far this year is because they've played such an active role in primaries, whereas many other large donors are waiting till the contest between the parties before they, um, they really put in their money if they're going to do that. Um, and they tend to back very conservative candidates. Uh, some of the candidates they've gotten behind are Patrick Morrissey, who won the West Virginia Senate primary uh, a couple of months back, mm-hmm. I guess it is now. Um, they supported Chris McDaniel, who's running in a Mississippi special election in November to replace former Senator Dad Cochran, and, uh, who retired earlier this year. And they've put money behind Senate primary candidates in Montana and Wisconsin, um, Wisconsin in particular is an area of their focus, given that it is where their company is headquartered mm-hmm. and they put particularly large amount of money behind the Republican primary candidate there. Interesting. What's their, what's their influence in, um, Illinois? They were big backers of Gene Ives, who was a challenger to the governor in Illinois mm-hmm. and who was best known for a transphobic ad in which a man in a dress said, thank you for signing legislation that lets me use the girl's bathroom no. in, like, to the, to the incumbent Republican governor and the chair of the Republican Party in the state actually asked her to take the ad down. If you Google her name, like this ad is probably the first thing that will pop up. It was um, it was a pretty big deal in the race. And she lost that primary to the incumbent governor. And what's what's the deal with Kevin Nicholson? So Kevin Nicholson is a Republican primary candidate for Senate in Wisconsin. That primary hasn't happened yet. The U-lines are clearly in his camp. They've been there since very early. I, I'm not in the business of predicting who's going to win elections. Nicholson has consistently pulled slightly ahead of his primary opponent, but um, not a lot. And a lot of folks remain undecided. Um, but that money is not going to go away when he, if, if he wins the primary. Um, and uh, we, we actually saw something similar to this happen in Wisconsin in 2016. Um, Russ Feingold, who was a former Democratic congressman, but who was running again, appeared to be ahead of the Republican incumbent in that race mm-hmm. up until Election Day. But just a few weeks out from Election Day, a ton of money poured out for, for the Republican, um, partly from the U-lines, but also from a few other very wealthy Republicans with ties to Wisconsin. And, you know, it's impossible to know what's going to happen at the last minute when a surge of money like that comes in. But uh, but also, I mean, maybe maybe that wasn't what happened. I mean, a lot of stuff that was sort of unexpected happened in Wisconsin mm-hmm. in the 2016 election. So it's hard to um, hard to say. But Nicholson, I mean, he's there. He's their bet in Wisconsin, but he's far from their only bet. Mm-hmm. Um, they've supported several candidates who've already won primaries. And but he's um, a long shot, right? You know, uh, he's polling about about even with uh, I mean, close to close close to the primary opponent. And I think most people would, most, most of the people who rate elections for competitiveness think that, um, that the Democratic incumbent is going to win that race. But I think it's, I, I don't think it's a sure thing. What about on the Democratic side the, with uh, contributions, multi-million dollar contributions by Tom Steyer? And- so Tom Steyer gives, um, gives to, to PAC supporting candidates um, in particular. So he made his money in finance and he has really taken on climate change as his biggest issue. Okay. Um, for a little while now. And the pack that he gives to and also that he runs is called Next Gen Climate Action. Um, but this cycle, he's actually also been behind um, a bunch of media calling to impeach the president. I think the sort of most um, talked about one was was like an actual billboard in Times Square. Mm. Um, 
And uh, interestingly, um, that is actually not the money that we're really talking about here because that is not reported to the Federal Election Commission because the Federal Election Commission only regulates money um, that is specifically advocating for the election or defeat of a candidate at the ballot box, which impeachment, interestingly, is not. Right? Yeah. The piece you worked on at the Times that compares Steyer and Uline's, uh their impact, like in April it was that they had spent Fifteen point seven and twenty million dollars, respectively. Are those? Do you know if those figures are the same? Yeah, Tom. Tom Steyer is now at about thirty million, and Uline is at about twenty-six million right now. Um, wow. And I anticipate those numbers are going to go up. They're still numbers one and two among the people who have made donations that have been reported, but there have been news reports of bigger commitments. So. Um, Michael Bloomberg just the mm. other day said he's going to spend $80 million on this cycle. Sheldon Adelson, who is a casino owner in Las Vegas and a, a well-known Republican donor, has said $30 million. So, you know, we would anticipate that we'll see more of that. They just buy, they're in. just like, I want to buy this. It's so crazy. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but I do want to point out that these, these two donors, um, Steyer and Uline, are actually not the most typical they're playing in the primaries much more than other donors, and they're giving to PACs that, where they have a lot of control. Mm -hmm. The majority of the big donors are giving to a small number of establishment super PACs, and um, those, those super PACs are likely to support the nominee of their party in the races where strategists think they can make the most difference. They're much less likely to, um, to play in, in the primaries. Um, a good example of this is um, Donald Sussman, who's a finance guy who's given $10 million to PACs that are affiliated with Democratic leadership, mm -hmm. and then also to one run by Emily's List, which supports pro-choice Democratic sure. women. That would sort of be a more typical pattern. There's people like that on the Democratic and the Republican side who are sort of giving to these more establishment groups where they have probably a little less control. They're, they're, sort, of, they're sort of trusting the party a little mm -hmm. more than going out on their own instincts. Um, and also, I think it's interesting um, that we just see new big donors all the time. Yeah. So just recently, Carla Jurvetson, who is a doctor and also the ex-wife of a big Silicon Valley venture capitalist, gave Emily the PAC affiliated with Emily's List $5.4 million in stock. Um, she's given to campaigns for years, but nothing at that level. Wow. And um, I, think, I think we are starting to see more sort of tech-affiliated money like that come into the system. So, I mean, who even knows? what we're going to see tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, so we always say like, like that the Republicans kind of are these, these conservative donors are like pulling the strings. Do these democratic donors, um, are they like influencing the message of the party? You know, with enough money, you can come in and really change the message in an individual race. But I still believe that most of the money that ends up being spent from super PACs is going to be, um, through super PACs that are relatively affiliated with the establishment. Um, so I guess in the, the way that I imagine they might dictate the message is just sort of by amplifying what these establishment PACs mm -hmm. um, are saying. But I mean, who knows? You know, there's no, there's no way to know who is going to come in with what amount of money tomorrow. I mean, that's the sort of interesting thing about this. Um, we only find out after it happens. As near as I can tell, it seems like the ability of absurdly wealthy people to shape the U.S. government according to their beliefs is stronger than ever. If you want more on this, you should go listen to our episode with Jane Mayer from season two. So if we are in a moment where ordinary people want to reclaim their agency in our democracy, how the hell are we supposed to compete with that? Which is all in Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money. It's terrifying. So how can we compete with it? Well, after the break, we'll turn to Run for Something's Amanda Littman to find out. Stay tuned. Welcome back, and welcome to the part of the show where we meet a person with an actual plan. Hey, look, practical advice on bad with money. All you people who leave mean comments, now you have nothing to stand on. I did it. I'm giving action items. Okay, sweetie? Sorry, I don't know what got into me. Amanda Littman is the co-founder and executive director of Run For Something, and she says the billionaires are only winning because we're letting them. Run for Something recruits and supports young, diverse progressives running for local office. So that means we work with people under the age of 40 running for things like school board, state legislature and city council for the first time. What was the, the genesis of Run for Something? 
So I worked for Hillary for two years mm-hmm. um, doing online fundraising and sort of grassroots donors recruitment and engagement. Um, and after the election, I started hearing from friends from high school and college who reached out to me to say, hey, uh, if Trump can be president, why can't I run for office? Because if that idiot can do it, anyone can. Right. What do I do? <laughs> and I didn't have a good answer for them. There wasn't a place where if you were newly excited about politics and wanted to do more than just vote or volunteer, you wanted to actually lead that would help you. Mm-hmm. So I decided to solve it myself. So we launched Run for Something on Inauguration Day last year, thinking it'd be like a small side hustle. Mm-hmm. I was interviewing for real jobs. And instead, 1,000 people signed up in the first week. 18,000 people have signed up to say they want to run since we launched 18 months ago. Oh, my God. Okay, so. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, okay, so how did you how did you become the co-founder of, like, how does it become a pack? How did you do that? Um, well, I think. That's a good question. Um, I decided to do it. I found a co-founder, a guy named Ross Morales Roquetto, who'd been doing campaign management for more than a decade. He's the kind of guy who used to manage school board races for fun when he was in college. That was his hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, And we started talking about mm, six weeks after the election in 2016 and realized we had this idea. We think it could be real. We thought there was value in it. We didn't see anyone else doing it. So we wrote a website, wrote a plan, opened a bank account. Um, got my dad, who's a lawyer, to help us navigate the paperwork. Mm -hmm. And then on Inauguration Day, we got some friends to sort of pitch us to Playbook and Politico to sort of get it out there. And all of a sudden, it was very, very real. Wow. Like, how does Run for Something work exactly? Like, how does it go from, like, a person signing up to, like, completion of the mission? Yeah. So we do two sort of big buckets of programming. The first is recruitment. So we do things like run TV ads and print ads and Facebook ads and put together stunts like National Run for Office Day, everyone's new favorite national holiday, Mm -hmm. to try and get people thinking about running for office, especially people who aren't rich old white men. Um, So we try and tell the stories of our candidates, uh, especially the young women, the young people of color who are running, to try and inspire more people like them to run. Um, In 2017, we worked with Danica Rome in Virginia, who was the first openly transgender person to elect to a state legislature. My favorite thing about working for her is that in the week after the election, we heard from dozens of trans people who reached out to us to say, hey, I didn't know somebody like me could run and win. Can you help me too? Right. Which is really cool. So if somebody signs up on our website, they join a conference call, we answer their basic questions about what running for office is like. Um, Then we help them in a couple different ways. We do resources. So things like what's the paperwork you need to file to get on the ballot in the first place? How do you open a bank account? How do you get a copy of the voter file, meaning the list of people you need to talk to to get them to show up to vote? Um, which weird street festivals do you need to go to in Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> to make sure you're reaching the right voters? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a network of about 500 mentors and coaches who work one-on-one with candidates on everything from content creation to design to advertising to how do you take that list of voters and figure out who you actually have to talk to, to who in the state party do you need to make nice with to get what you need, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do endorsements. So endorsements are taking all the folks we've talked to and finding the stars. We've endorsed more than 400 people across 44 states plus D.C. Our goal is to endorse 1,000 this year. Endorsement comes with money in some states, a lot of press, um, and one-on-one work with our uh, staff. Wow. Okay, so that's, I mean, that's kind of the point is like, I think people think of politicians as being one type of person mm-hmm. um, that looks you know, maybe like John Slattery from Mad Men. <laughs> so handsome. <laughs> uh, way more handsome than any politician. But that's who I went with for gray haired guy. Um, mm-hmm. So so how like what kind of people have decided to run for office through you guys? Like what kind of candidates are you are you seeing through to, you know, fully being like part of run for something? Uh, It's all kinds of people. And the candidates who make it worth it is people like single moms, um, refugees, a guy who managed a Chipotle, a guy who was a battle rapper outside Atlanta. Um, Just today I was looking at a video from a guy who's um, running to be the first um, deaf person elected to a state legislature in the country. Wow. Which is really cool. Um, Trans people. uh, We were working with a guy who was running for coroner in Colorado who wanted to make – uh, the practice of misgendering trans people after death, part of it was part of his platform, was trying to end that because it has an impact on data collection and respect and dignity. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways that matters. Wait, um, you can run for coroner? In about 1,300 counties in the country, yeah. Which is cool, right? I didn't know that either. Wait, this I'm learning is a lot amazing. in this job. What sort of qualifications do you need to be coroner? Um, there's no, in many places, there's no real qualification. You don't have to be a doctor. No. Okay, the I have we to go. With happened to have a master's, I but I actually have to go because I'm about to go run for coroner. Do it, girl. Uh, 
so I'm, you kill I have like a <laughs> weird brutal joke. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh man, my girlfriend's gonna be so pissed that you told me this. <laughs> um, she's like, get some lighter hobbies. Uh, oh my god, that's amazing. Okay, wow. So like, you don't. There's things that you don't even know you could do. Library board, school board, um, village council. I looked into this. In New York, you can't run for library board and it's appointed position. But in a lot of places you can, which how cool would that be to have control over library funding and programming? And you probably get to pick like what, you know, young adult books. For instance, mine, I hate everyone but you, that you could like put in your (laughs) library. Maybe. Yeah. Depends on the place. Isn't that cool? Or like if you run for school board, you get a chance to um, help decide the budget and in a lot of places, the curriculum. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's a way to really make a difference in people's lives. Or deaths. Sorry. Or wow. deaths as I will. I, I'm, no, I'm into these jokes. This <laughs> is great news for me personally, but also everyone. Um, wow. Okay. So can you talk about like what are the, the hard aspects for first-time candidates? Yeah. So most people think it's really expensive to run for office. And the reality is it can be. Um, 75% of school board races cost $1,000 or less. 85% cost $5,000 or less. The average budget of the candidate we work with is about Mm $10,000. There's a lot of variation there. You know, a state legislative race in New York City can cost a million, two million, three million. Um, A state legislative race in Virginia cost about $100,000, $150,000, depending on the district. Mm but there's a lot of variation. So I think a thing people think is really hard is fundraising. Um, and they often think, if I'm not rich, how am I going to do right. this? And the reality is you don't self-fund. That's not the point. You ask people to contribute, and it's not a gift to you. It's a gift to themselves because they're investing in their community. So we have to coach a lot of folks through fundraising. And how do you go about asking everyone you've ever met to invest in something um, that is sort of intangible. Yeah, and you feel um, maybe like awkward asking. People are so weird about money, obviously. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that is is interesting. Also, I bet a lot of these seats are like uncontested and you don't really need to make like a commercial, you know? No, well, in 2016, 40% of state legislative races were uncontested, um, which means there was just only one candidate from either party. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a huge problem for voter turnout in the sense that if you don't have someone to vote for, you don't show up to vote. Right. There's no incentive. And voting is a habit. So we have to give people as many opportunities as possible to build that habit. Um, and a lot of these races, you're not making TV ads or radio ads or print ads. Right. You're knocking doors. It is literally how hard are you willing to work for this thing that you think will make a difference. And wow, I'm so ignorant. Are these positions paid <laughs> at all? Like some, it varies from state to state. So I think in, for example, in New Hampshire, if you're a state legislator, I think they just raised it to like 400 bucks a year is your total pay. Wow, so that's media. why people don't want to do it. It's one of the reasons. It's why it limits the kind of people who do it. Right. So like you can only do that if you're independently wealthy right. or if you're retired, um, which is one of the reasons why there's a lot of older women who have run for state, New Hampshire state legislature, which has then led to New Hampshire having one of the first all-female congressional delegations. Oh, cool. Fun fact. Um, in city councils, school boards, those tend to be part-time, not paid. Um, New York city council is a paid position. Actually pays pretty well here. It's like over six figures mm-hmm. um but it definitely depends from place to place yeah and so but so people have day jobs and also yeah and also do this but like what are your other hobbies netflix yeah it's like what do you do you knock doors or like go to the gym right. it's the same <laughs> that's true gym. it's all a bunch of walking yeah. um <laughs> like so so what are the specific fundraising resources Um, So the reality is that the best people to ask for money are your friends and family and anyone you've ever known. Mm. Um, I believe, I think it was Amy Klobuchar talked about how she raised something like 10,000 bucks from her ex-boyfriends, which is one of my favorite. Amazing. Like what what hustle that is. Uh, That's like such a power move. Mm -hmm. Um, Hey, I broke up with you, but you want to max out to my campaign? Um, But so you just, you go to the people who know you best and you ask them to invest in their community. And if you can't get the people who know you best to cough up even five or 10 bucks, reevaluate whether you should be running in the first place. Um, And so obviously, so like you guys want to bet on, on candidates, even if they aren't a surefire bet, like you want to give them money. What is the the thinking behind that? And, and how important is it just to get people on the ballot, even if they, they possibly aren't going to be um, elected? You know, we don't expect our candidates to win. Um, 90% of first-time candidates lose because re- they're usually going up, inc- up against incumbents, and incumbents have a 90% chance of winning. Yeah. Um, the fact that half of our candidates have won, the ones that have gone through Election Day, is an indicator that we're picking good people and they're running good campaigns. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think for us, you know, I want people to win. I love winning. That's why one of the reasons I got into politics is because the competition is fun. But um, there are more good things that happen during a campaign than just the outcome on Election Day. Mm -hmm. You know, talking to voters, holding incumbents accountable, um, bringing stuff to the forefront of debate, um, making sure that people understand what their government is doing for them and what their government isn't doing for right. them. Right. That all happens during a campaign. And campaigns are galvanizing forces for communities. You know, think about what you do when you're pissed off. You donate money to a cause that you care about. And then the next step is maybe show up to a protest. And the next step is you go knock doors for someone in your area. Yeah. That door knocking, that phone banking, that text banking or whatever you decide to do, that's because there's a candidate running who you can get engaged with. How do, how do you guys feel about like all the the sort of people who are getting attention now who have like actually won these races or have actually like are they are I guess I would be like, yeah, I want to run. But then am I I would be nervous. Like, am I prepared to to actually serve, you know? Yeah. I mean, one, no mediocre white dude ever second guesses himself. I know. I know. That's why I was worried about saying because I was like, I feel so vulnerable doing it. But also like it's like everybody's just kind of faking it till you make it. And like, how do I why is this person better than than me? You know, the way you become qualified to run for office is by running for office. Right. You become the person able to do it by doing it. Um, I think that's really powerful. Um, It's really scary. Um, I have so much admiration and I'm in awe of the people who run for office because you have to change your lives. You change your weekend, you change your habits, yeah. you change your career maybe. Um, and if you win, then you're responsible for something really meaningful for people, whether it's school funding or trash pickup or how people vote in your state. Um, it really, really matters. And that's high stakes. But the reward is, God, it's like such a way to make a difference. And honestly, it's easier than advocacy. Advocacy. Because advocacy is pushing an elected official to make a decision. Yeah. Running for office and winning is just making a decision. I mean, you then get advocated too, but it's sort of a lazy way out. Is there a playbook? Like, is there something that you give people? Are you like, are you like, let's comb your tweets and make sure you're not racist? <laughs> like, are you? Oh, we do that. Um, <laughs> so we have a bunch of different resources for folks. We have things like Google Docs for how to get on the ballot in every state. Mm-hmm. We have templates for plans. Um, I wrote a book last year called Run for Something, a real talk guide to fixing the system yourself. Available in bookstores yes, now. Yes, plug it. Um, <laughs> I'm sort of shameless about it. I should be more shameless about it. Um, but so that's a pretty good walkthrough of how to run and why to run, um, including like very detailed Google these keywords in order to find this information. For sure. Like, I think you need to vet them more than like probably like SNL vets. They're new. (laughs) You know what I mean? But then it's like, look who our president is now. Like, honestly, like have whatever tweets you want. Yeah. I mean, no, nothing you've ever said or done is as bad as what Trump has done. And granted, he's a, we'll call him a millionaire because I don't think he's a billionaire. Mm-hmm. He's a millionaire mm-hmm. who has 99% name ID and gets free media every time he opens his mouth. Right. But um, the reality is, is that voters have adjusted what they're comfortable with out of their elected officials. And that's a really powerful thing. Yeah. Um, it means that we've expanded the idea of what a politician and what a public servant is. So more young people, more women, more people of color, mm-hmm. um, more people who don't look like a politician can can get in get in the game mm-hmm. and there's more like you know we want someone who looks like us relatable like barack obama's little memoir about like i did cocaine one time or whatever yeah. it's like i don't trust someone who's never played beer pong yeah I, what's wrong with you <laughs> for millennials in particular like how, how to stop being lazy and do this <laughs> <laughs> well i think Remember that millennials encompasses everything from like, I think it's 18 to 35, nearly 40 year olds. So there's a lot of range there. Um, But we have people from ages, I think our youngest candidate is 19. I love it. um, All the way through 40 who are running for office. Um, There is nowhere in any city council or state charter that says that you need to be 50 and have 10 years in the workforce and Right. A net worth of $100,000 in order to run for office. In some states, there are some age restrictions of 21, 25. Fun fact, in Oklahoma, I believe you have to be 31 to run for governor. That's weird. There's things I can never unknow. Um, (laughs) And I think that, like, you go by the rules, but um, what I think we have heard from our candidates over and over again is when they meet people, they're not scared of their age. They're not like, you don't have enough experience. If anything, the voters they're talking to are so excited to meet someone who is young and excited to do it, Mm -hmm. um, who's passionate and willing to show up and do the work. 
Um, it inspires people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ran earlier this week, um, 28 years old, going to be the youngest member of Congress when she wins in the fall. Um, her win is going to inspire thousands of more people like her to run for office. And that is so, so exciting. Mm-hmm. So for these candidates, what were some of their tipping points into why they wanted to run? I would say, generally speaking, a lot of folks were pushed into the idea by Trump's election or the things he's done. And then the tipping point is seeing their government fail them, whether that's through teacher strikes in Oklahoma and Colorado and Arizona Mm -hmm. and Kentucky and West Virginia um, or through uh, land deals or or city councils that won't pass, you know, equal protection clauses, um, ordinances, those piss people off. And they're like, if this if my government isn't going to fight for me, then I have to show up and fight for myself. Guys, remember back in the climate change episode when Caroline Lewis from the Clio Institute asked me if I was going to run for something, which is laughable. But is it? Is it deadbeats? Because I'm excited to announce that I'm still not probably going to do that. I've got my hands full with this whole hosting a podcast that offers a blueprint for financial policy reforms that would make the country less class stratified thing. Also, I like just got a dog. So that's really time consuming. I'm joking. Not about the dog. But if the ideas you've heard this season make you feel inspired to raise your voice about these issues or other issues you care about, and I know you care about a lot of other issues because you send me emails and tweets asking for episodes devoted to them all the time, which I appreciate. My mom even does that. Go to runforsomething.net and read about people not too different from yourself who are taking that inspiration one step further. Even if you don't feel ready to run for office, there's a good chance you'll discover someone who is running whose platform lines up with the kinds of reforms we talk about all the time on this show. And in that sense, voting for one of them is basically like voting for me. That's right. I said it. I stand by it. I said what I said. So we can pretend that I'm the president when they all win their respective races. Fair warning that I'm going to use my pretend presidency to nominate said dog Beans for the pretend Supreme Court. He's very cute. You should follow his Instagram at Refined Beans. I don't think that's too much to ask. In return for saving American democracy. Not the following him on Instagram part. The part about voting and running for office. You guys get it. Thank you for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. It's very passive aggressive. Also tell your friends who own corporations that are named after them but spelled slightly differently just to confuse the poor people. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell, Cameron Drews, and Sam Dingman, and we're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. Oh my god, we only have a few episodes left. What are we gonna do? Probably just, like, talk on Twitter. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>